All right, well, welcome to our third installment in our series entitled Doctrine. And uh, as we go through the series, we're actually tagging into this book right here. I keep pushing it before you every week because I hope that you have picked up the book and hopefully you are reading through it kind of chapter by chapter congruent with the series as it goes. Um, Again, it's a great little book to kind of get a sense of what uh, Bible Doctrine is all about. We're not necessarily teaching the book. It's a supplement to what we're really trying to do, was to, uh, which more than probably anything else, is to see God's glory and God's goodness in the context of the topic of doctrine. So that's really what we're doing. And this week is going to be a really interesting, fun, challenging week because we are looking at God makes. We're looking at creation. Now, as we go into that, I want to let you know, this is going to take a little bit of time, but don't worry, what I take up in time, I will leverage with confusing you, so it'll work great. You'll love it. It's going to be awesome. So, what I want you to do right now, if you have a Bible, I want you to open up to the very first book, and the very first chapter, and I want you to look at the very first verse. Because if we're talking about creation and God makes, uh, there's probably no better place to start than right there. So there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that first simple abbreviated verse that you have probably all memorized used to be taken for granted. It used to be that people would simply hear that and say, yes, I believe that, I affirm that. There was a beginning, and there was the one true God, and He created. But over the course of time, this phrase, this sentence, this idea is increasingly challenged and people more and more are looking at this and saying, boy, I'm not so certain about this anymore. In fact, if anything, if you want to get the stink eye, just roll into your classroom or roll into your cubicle and say, I believe in a one true God that created. You'll get the stink eye, at least from some people on occasion. If you want to go from odd duck to total buffoon, read chapter two, verse two. Where it says, then on the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. And what this really does, what it communicates, is that the Bible affirms the idea that somehow this one true God who created everything from nothing did it in the span of a week. And people will look at that and say, man, now you're just crazy, dude. You really believe that. See, this is a part of the challenge of this whole thing. And in fact, when we think about the topic of God creating, and we think about it from a Bible perspective, uh, in the last hundred years, this has been one of the most profound debates, right? I mean, this is the one that's just been raging, and it's just been out of control at times. And people can be really nasty in this fight, because again, everybody's got an agenda. And sometimes in the agenda, you forget you're dealing with human beings. And so you just start trying to win. I just need to beat them in the argument. I need to convince them of the truth that I hold. And, and so, tragically, when it comes to the idea of origins, it's a hot topic. That's probably what's a little bit different from the other messages we looked at in the series so far. Today I roll in and I realize that among all of the hot topics, this has got to be like in the top three. Right? There's just 
difference. There is fighting. There is debate. And personally, what I find challenging about that is the fact that some of that, you know what, it's, it's, it's not just like two sides that have a disagreement that is polar. See, there's that truth, right? There are those who maybe are more uh, atheistic, and so they look at the creation in a certain way, and then there's those who are theists, and they look at it in a very different way. But then even in the realm of the theists, Christian to Christian, there are differing opinions, there are different views, and sometimes even those create these different fights. And so everybody gets into the topic, how? How does God make? In fact, that seems to be the biggest question of all we have at times. It's like, well, how was it done? How did it start? How did it form up? How did God make? That's what we want to know. And so I want to dive into that topic, but I need to start again with the great debate. Like I said, there are different views. And for us to really understand the full framework of the doctrine of creation, we have to kind of look at the varying ideas that surround the topic. And so in this, I think there are four basic uh, categories maybe we could look at. Now, this is just a survey. This is not exhaustive. We're not going to pound out each one of these and spend like 20 minutes per point. That's where all God's people said amen. And so, you know, not going to do that today. But I'm going to give you a brief overview of each of these and, and show kind of how they divide up. Now, the first one that theists, Christians, hold to is what we call young earth creationism. And this is the one that probably most of you are familiar with, right? You went to Sunday school, you had the little children's Bible, you saw Adam and Eve, and you look at the story of Genesis, and you just take it as literal as it's spelled out. So young earth creationism says when God created, he created somewhere between six and 10,000 years ago. He did it over a literal span of six days. He rested on the seventh day. And in that environment, all the creation that we know was established at that time. All of it, right? So everything that we see in paleontology that's extinct, they'll say it existed then alongside all the other animals that we're familiar with. And so that's the idea of young earth creationism. And there are some that hold to this with bold tenacity. I mean, this is it. This is part and parcel to the gospel. You lose this, you lose everything. That's sort of the take. And so they sort of look at the other views with cynicism and concern and sometimes with disdain. But that's the view. The second view is what we would call old earth creationism. Old Earth Creationism. And this one, man, it is so diversified. If there's any category that's broken into smaller pieces, it's this particular one. Now, if uh, you're somebody that enjoys science and likes to kind of keep up on some of those things, if you're familiar with the Discovery Institute that's located here in Seattle, uh, if you follow um, those who hold to intelligent design, a lot of them fall under this category right here of old earth creationism. Now, under this, like I said, it breaks into three components. The first would be historical creationism. And so by that, what these people believe is they say God created the universe 13.8 billion years ago. And God created the earth uh, roughly 4.5 billion years ago. But when he created it, he just left it for a while. It was just formless and void, and he didn't carve into it. He didn't bring distinction to it. 
until at some juncture where then God set out to create in rapid fire pacing, right? So that might have been actually six days, whatever else. But they acknowledge an old universe, an old earth, but the way we see it today is relatively young and was created by God in a fast, fast way. That would be historic creationism. And that falls under the second category. Another one that falls under the second category is what is called gap theory or the reconstitution theory, if you like fancy words. And so this idea is that God, again, created a long time ago. The earth is 4.5 billion years old. That at some juncture, God actually populated the earth with the angels. Uh, This is kind of a loose idea of it. But potentially, the angels populated the earth. There was the great rebellion. Satan and the angels revolted against God. They laid waste to the earth. It was completely decimated. God let it sit for a season, then came back and recreated again with Adam and Eve. And some of the passages for that are a little bit of the language used in Genesis 1. Also, Jeremiah 4 kind of talks about this great catastrophe that happened and then left the earth formless and void. And so they look at that and say, okay, well, there was a gap in time. There was a story and a destruction. And then the story we're familiar with with Adam and Eve. That's gap theory or reconstitution theory or reconstruction theory. Any of these words, it works. And so that's that one. The third is what's called progressive, not, not, I'm still under old earth creationism here, but the third idea is progressive creation. And so this is again, universe is old, earth is old, but then what God set out to do was, was just intentionally micro-create all the stages along over the last few billion years. And so it wasn't evolution, it was just God was just creating, 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 all these new little additives or changes or new species he just spoke those new ones into existence over the course of a long period of time and that's probably the most popular idea among uh, the intelligent design community among the discovery institute and so there's that view of old earth creationism the third view is what is called theistic evolution And right there you hear that, and sometimes for some Christians they instantly hear evolution, and they think it's a synonym for atheism. And and you shouldn't do that. Evolution is an idea in science. It doesn't have to make any judgment call about God. It's just an idea in science. But when Christians hold to the idea that God used evolution, they call it theistic evolution. That God was the one that orchestrated the idea of evolution. That God built into the code of the universe the capacity to create, to adapt, to expand, to tether together and make new and greater things all by His power and His glory. If you like uh, quantum mechanics, you realize that the whole universe is just made up of little strings of data and code. Well, the theistic evolutionist says, well, that's God's word at the very building blocks of the universe. Right? Bringing everything we know to be. And that it just then sort of had this life of glorifying God, kind of on its own, but channeled by God. Those are the three views that Christians of different backgrounds, different ideologies, they hold. And then there's a fourth category when it comes to how it was done. And this category is naturalism. And naturalism is the idea that there is no God, or if there is a God, we're not smart enough to know who that God is, so we don't want to claim him. I'm either an atheist or an agnostic, and I just believe that the universe is because it is. It just does what it does. In fact, I read an article this week 
talking about, they think, you know what, there was probably never a big bang, some scientists are wondering. They're like, because it didn't need a big bang, because the laws of the universe have always just been there to let the universe be established. Therefore, the conclusion of the article was, because the laws have always been there, not only do we not need a big, big bang, we don't need a creator, because they've always just been there. And I'm like, are you reading your own article? I mean, honestly, I'm reading it like, you know, that's like saying, you know what, uh, I, I'm going to have kids, but we don't need any parents because the laws of obedience just take over on their own and the kids do fine. You know, it's like, no. On top of that, you can't be like, well, they, they've just always been there, so the universe has just always been there and it never needed anything to kick it off and we'll just let it go right there and there is no God. But that's naturalism. And you have to understand, with naturalism, for all of the scientific rigor and jargon at the core of naturalism isn't actually science, but at its core, there's an agenda. And the agenda is to say, you know what? Man, we just want to extract God from the equation. You can't listen to Richard Dawkins and not think he has an agenda. He goes from scientist to militant to show there is no God. That's naturalism. And when we look at these four different camps, the thing I want to reinforce is that the first three... Man, you can be a Christian and fall in any one of those three. You really can. There's going to be some places that maybe say, no, 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 only the top one counts. Or no, 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 maybe the first two, but not the third. But, you know, really, we're looking at this and we say, you know what? As Christians, you can hold to one of those first three. The fourth concept, this idea of naturalism, man, that doesn't work. Because, again, what you're ultimately saying is, no, God. You can't be a Christian and hold a naturalism. Because again, the very essence of creation is designed to point to a creator. And if you want to deny the creator, creation's just hanging out doing nothing in comparison. And so when we think about the doctrine of God making, the first thing we have to acknowledge is that it's God who does the making. Maybe from there we get into other questions, other debates, other issues of tension that come in those three camps. Right now we're just talking about Christians. When Christians talk about creation, they have these interesting, tense discussions about, well, how do we see the Bible? Because I know some of you right now are sitting there and you're saying, wait, 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 I read Genesis 1 and it says day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day and night. Uh, That's the only way you can take it. Or on the flip, you're saying, no, 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 I love science, Matt, and I look at science and there's no way you can take Genesis 1 seriously at all because of science. Well, this is all a part of the tension that happens within Christian circles. The tension of how God makes. And the tension really comes to two basic areas. The first is when we look at the Bible, do we take it literal or do we take it figurative? And this becomes a verses. Literal verses. Figurative. The other that happens is some people say, well, well, uh, maybe that's true, but this is also a faith versus science. Right? And science is always trying to disprove faith, and faith is always trying to curb science. And I think these issues of tension are sort of silly tension, frankly, because we can alleviate some of the tension. Especially as we're talking about origins, we should work hard to alleviate. So the first thing is that you shouldn't necessarily look and say, it's literal versus figurative. You should really look and say, it's literal and figurative. The Bible is both, and what we need to do is not debate, well, do I take it literally or figuratively? The issue is, do we take it absolutely? 
See, I believe we need to take the Bible absolutely. This is the word of God. This is the truth of God. This is the inerrant scriptures. There is not error. There's not a problem with this. I take it absolutely. Does it mean everything in it I read literally? No. Does it mean everything in it I read figuratively? No. In fact, sometimes in the same passage, you see both. You see this in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is talking about lust, and he says, Listen, if your eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. Is Jesus meaning that literally? I hope not. Hey, little Jimmy, what's with the patches, bro? You know what I mean? Like, well, Jesus said, you know, like, no, we know. We look at that and we go, literal. I mean, we'll figurative. But in the next thing, because he says it's better for you to do that than for your whole body to be cast into hell, we don't go, and that's figurative too. We go, no, that part's literal. Right? So in the span of one passage, we can acknowledge that sometimes it's figurative and sometimes it's literal. The bottom line is it's all absolute. And so God calls us to be wise and responsible and face his word with integrity that seeks to understand that dynamic. This is the big idea is sometimes you're not quite sure whether it's literal or figurative, but it's absolute. And you get the absolute idea in that. And so that's a reasonable way that we should approach things even like Genesis chapter 1. We go, man, it's literal and it's figurative. The more important thing is, it's absolutely true. I just always don't know where some of those borders kind of leave off and begin. But we don't have to have this tension that says this or this. We just really don't. I mean, I even think about it in relationship to Genesis chapter 1. Even the staunchest, we take every word of that literal, they don't take every word of that literal. So when it talks about uh, the, the, the ferment that separates the waters above from the waters below, in Hebrew, that's literally a solid space, a vault, some, or some uh, translations call it. Nobody looks at that and says, well, literally, there's this metal vault uh, about 5,000 feet up that separates the water from the water. We, we, we know that that's sort of a figurative language that is used. And we know that God didn't literally need to rest on the seventh day. We, we know that God is God. God didn't have to be like, whew, I'm beat, man. That was a long six days, day and night. I mean, we, we know that's not something that we go, that has to be literal. And boy, there's no other way to read it. Even the idea of day and night the first day, day and night the second day, day and night the third day. The fourth day, oh yeah, sun, moon, and stars. Well, that kind of helps with day and night. So what was the first three days? Again, is it absolutely true? It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Does it mean we have to see all of it literal to be absolute? That doesn't necessarily mean that. And again, even the staunchest literalist can't take every bit of it literally. On the flip, I think we need to be cautious to, to say, well, I want to dis, disembowel all of it and say there's nothing literal there and it's all figurative well no we literally bear the image of god we are literally made in his likeness god literally spoke and it was created sort of literal ideas so we don't need the tension we need the unity the other place we need the unity is when it comes to faith and science it doesn't have to be faith versus science it doesn't have to be adversarial what we really should do is say man these two work together in tandem because ultimately go back to last week we looked at god's revelation and we said that god speaks in two ways to humanity right we said he speaks in creation and then he speaks 
in canon. We said he speaks generally to the whole world by proclaiming his glory. Go back to Psalm 19. We looked at it last week. I put it up on the screen today where the heavens declare the glory of God. They reveal him. They speak knowledge. They speak truth. Again, the, the creation is in that way kind of like a dancing, living, colorful scripture given to us. And science is the tool to interpret creation to see God's glory. When you look at DNA, when you look at cells, when you look at galaxies, man, you see God. Science is just interpretation of what God has revealed to us. That's what it should be. Not everybody does that because they're idolatrous or, uh, you know, they don't want to submit to the one true God, but that's what science should do. It should interpret seeing God's truth. In the same tone, God says not only does creation reveal him, but Scripture, specific revelation, the Bible reveals him. And so Psalm 19 goes on and talks about the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. It talks about the statutes and the commands of the Lord. And again, our job then as Christians is to interpret this also. We call that hermeneutics, where we try to understand what the Bible says. Science understands what God has said in creation. Hermeneutics understands what God has said here. But both are God speaking. God reveals. And so we can remove the tension. It doesn't have to be literal versus figurative. It doesn't have to be science versus faith. But we go, man, the best science is done in the context of faith. Some of the most profound truths are embraced when we see Scripture as absolute. And we don't just simply debate the literal versus figurative. In fact, that's the bigger problem. Sometimes I see people that are just feisty over one or the other and they miss to actually exercise what this tells them to do. They can win the argument by killing the curious. Or they can say, this is God's word, but then they go have an affair. Or this is the truth, but then they don't actually exercise it. So, In a lot of ways, on these debates, I think it's more important to go, do we take it seriously as it is, and absolutely as it is, and do we see God in both creation and in canon, and worship Him for who He is? See, those are the more important issues that we want to embrace. In fact, I think when it comes to Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, that body, um, I think there's some reminders that are, are good to know. I call them the great reminders. The first great reminder is this. Genesis 1 through 4 is more about covenant origins than cosmic origins. It's more about covenant origins than cosmic origins. You know, it's like God is saying, here's what happened. I made man to be with me in Eden, and we were to be unified, and I would walk with him, and he would worship me, and it would be golden. But then humanity rebelled, booted him out of Eden, but then I called Abraham and brought him back into covenant so that then that nation would go and bear covenant. You almost can't extract Genesis 1 through 4 from the rest of Genesis because it's all about covenant. You know, we like to go, well, I want to know about creation and origins. And God says, but that's, that's not fully what I'm really trying to put that there for. It's more about the birth of covenant and our problem with sin. Another great reminder, Genesis 1 through 4 is more about theology than biology or geology or cosmology. It's more about theology. 
I mean, you've got to understand, this is something we forget sometimes about Israel. And, and when Genesis comes into play, right? So God rises up Moses. Moses pens Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. First five books, right? Call it the Pentateuch. So he writes these first five books. Here's what we forget. Israel is in Egypt for well over 400 years. They're in a pagan culture, and they have never had a Bible. Do you realize Israel never had a Bible? Israel did not have any synagogues. Israel did not have a temple. Israel had no real working theology other than God had come to Abraham and they had passed some stories down. And now they're in this horrible place, highly paganized. They're going to understand the created world is being run by all these crazy gods. If you understand like Near Eastern uh, like deities and worship of the era... It is insane, man. It's like an episode of Jersey Shores. It's so good. It's like, I mean, honestly, it's like, you know, this God fought that God and they were fighting over her because he actually slept with her and that she was his. And so they ripped each other apart. And when they ripped each other apart, it created the four elements. And then this other God stepped in and sewed them together and made this behemoth God. And I mean, it was nuts, man. Totally nuts. I mean, you're just like going, I would so watch that show, you know, and right well, that was all of the deities of Egypt. There was a God for the sea and a God for the land and a God for the ocean and a God for a sun, God for the moon, all of this. And that's what Israel would know. If you ever wonder why Israel always struggled with taking on other gods, you have to go back to their time in Egypt. Because Egypt had gods for everything. And all those gods were in control and all those gods were fighting each other and all those gods were perverted and mean and everything else. And then they hear from Moses, here is your God. He controls all the elements. The gods don't control the elements. God controls the elements. And all the creation that you see is being birthed out of chaos and violence and hatred and strife and perversion. No, God just spoke that. This is far more about Israel learning about their God than God trying to go, okay, let me, let me explain the details of kind of, you know, material origins. It's theological. The third thing is that Genesis 1 through 4 is more about telling Israel what they needed to know coming out of Egypt than what we want to know going into a science class. It's just true. You know, what, you know what Israel needed to know? They needed to know that, you know what, you've been called slaves, but you bear my image. That's what they needed to know. They, they needed to know, he says, you know what, you've been confused by multiple gods, but what you need to know, there, there is one true God. That's what you need to know. In fact, in a lot of ways, we need to see Genesis, especially that early section, of a little bit like when your three-year-old comes to you and says, Mommy, Daddy... Where do babies come from? What do you say? You don't, do you say, well, there's this egg in your mother, and then there's sperm, and what happens is each has 30, 23 chromosomes, and they come, you don't do that. The kid would just be like, oh, no. You know, like, what do we do with that? No, to a three-year-old, you say, well, babies come from mommy's tummy. That's safe. You know, like, it's great. When they're 13, the story has to change, Right? <laughs> And what do you have to do? You have to give them greater detail. But at that stage, what you told them isn't a lie. It's totally true. It's absolutely true. It's what they needed. It was the question they were asking. Perfect for them. Well, Israel's question isn't, 
okay, so what, what made dirt and what made the moon? And that, that's not so much their question. It's a little bit more like, where do babies come from? That's why God doesn't give all the specifics and it's not all detailed. I mean, you know, we argue about something that takes up a page. We shouldn't argue about it. I know we want to know more. I mean, I know we kind of look at all of this and go, but I, I, I have questions. I want to know about dinosaurs. Right? I mean, people, I mean, I, when I was doing youth ministry, we'd do Q&As all the time. Every Q&A. Where do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? I'm like, didn't you read it? Adam was like riding bronc back, you know, on a T-Rex. You know, like, he was rocking that thing, you know. And, you know, it's like, doesn't tell us. I don't know. I don't know where dinosaurs fully fit into the whole picture of things. Maybe they're in Eden rocking it with Adam. I don't know. I joke sometimes that God put fossils in the ground just to mess with us. They never existed. It's like a, it's like a big joke, you know what I mean? He's up there with Jesus, like, dude, check this out. Watch this. They're going to dig, dig, dig it up, man. They're going to put it all together. It's going to be so funny. You know, like, I don't know where they fit, but we want to know. But again, it's not questions the Bible wants to answer. It's just things we want to know. We get into more tricky questions like, all right, so there was Adam, there were Eve, they sinned, they got kicked out, then they had uh, Cain, and they had Abel, and who's Cain's wife? And then my Sunday school teacher said, his sister. And I threw up in my mouth a little bit, and I thought, is that even, is that allowed? I don't even know if that's allowed, right? So we, go, we don't know what to do, and we want to know, what do we do with Cain's wife? So it's either a sister or it's somebody else, and we go, I don't know what to do with that. Or Cain kills Abel, and then Cain's freaked out. Why? He's afraid other people are going to kill him. I'm like, what do you mean other people? There's your mom, your dad, your dead brother, and you. <laughs> Who are you afraid of, man? <laughs> you know? Now, I, I say that having fun, but again, these are all the questions, especially as a pastor, that, that I, I'm, I'm asked. What about this, and what about that? I'm like, I, I, I don't know. People say, if God made it only 6,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, why did he make it look so old? Isn't that deceptive? I don't know. <laughs> right? Why did he make the chicken before the egg? I don't know. Right? I don't know. See, these are the questions we have. They were not the questions that Israel had. And so that's where, again, I go back to, I believe it absolutely. I believe it absolutely. I don't know where literal and figurative leave off and begin when it comes to the first four chapters in some things. I think there's other things, I'm going to spell them out really quick, that absolutely matter. You must die for these that I'm going to talk about. But, but some of these I go, man, you know, there's no clean answers. Like I said, you take the Cain's wife thing. It's not a clean answer if you say it was his sister. More than that, you don't even have biblical evidence for that. We have four people when Cain kills Abel. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. That's the only thing the Bible tells us. We go, well, there, there was brothers and sisters. Says who? Not this. Well, the other people he's afraid of, that was his brothers and sisters. Says who? Because this doesn't say that. Right? It just doesn't say that. So we, we have to realize that this just doesn't give us everything we want to know. But three core truths that must be maintained wherever you land. Young earth, old earth, theistic evolution, wherever you land on those three things, you must maintain. And this first one is absolutely critical. You must maintain that the person of Adam is a literal and historical person who is the recipient of God's image and likeness. 
You must maintain that. There are some that say, no, 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 Adam is just a figurative example of the human race. Or, uh, you know, he's not somebody that you actually have to tag in as an actual person. I'm telling you, all theology, the very essence of the gospel, completely comes apart under that premise. Completely. Because again, you go back to Romans. In one man, Adam, we all died. All who bear the image of God die because of Adam. But then in one man, Christ Jesus, all are made alive. You can't lose Adam as a literal historical person and maintain the essence of what the gospel is all about. So if you go, man, I don't, I don't believe in a literal historical Adam, I, I, I plead with you to get back to that because that does affect the gospel because it affects our sinful condition. We have original sin. We have original rebellion with God because Adam, our great, 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 to like the 15th power granddad, blew it. And the Bible sees him as a literal historical figure who is to blame for our condition. So you've got to maintain that. That's the first thing. The second thing that must be maintained, the God of the Bible is the creator of the universe. The God of the Bible is the creator of the universe. In other words, this is where I get a little bit, and I'm just being honest, I get irritated at times with the arguments of intelligent design because I feel like in the end all you, did, you argued for is a deity. Right? They said, there's an intelligent designer. You know how often ID doesn't want to call him Jesus or God? Because that kind of, well, no, we're not trying to be too specific. Uh, just, you know, an intelligent designer. No, his name's Jesus. It's God. So the God of the Bible is the creator of the universe. It's not generic. It's not, well, as we understand him, his name is God. But as the Buddhist understands him, it's something else. And as the Muslim understands him, it's something else. No, the God of the Bible is created the universe. Third thing you must maintain, no matter what, that God has personally revealed, real, revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. God has personally revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who is Lord, co-creator, and substitutional savior. Right? So it's not like, hey, we have this divine being. He's out there. He made things. We don't totally know how it was made. Uh, we're loosely kind of appreciating that there's something out there. No, no, no. He physically, personally, intimately reveals himself. And that's why we say Jesus is the only way. So you can do what you want with the rest of how we got here. Provided that these three things remain central. That they're core. And all of it. You do that, you're good. Because in some ways, the how is not the biggest question. We make it the big question, right? Because of all the debates, because we go to biology class and we hear things and we don't know what to do. And then we go to, you know, cosmology and we don't know what to do all the more. And we're, we're just sort of at a loss. And then there's different ways to look at the Bible. But, but that's not the big issue about how he did it. I think the bigger issue for us as Christians who are commissioned to be worshipers comes down to Why? Why God makes? How? I don't know. I wasn't there, man. There's no slideshow God does ever. Really. Check it out. Here's the second day. Bam. Right? There I am. I'm like, woo, check it out. You know, I mean, it's just, we don't have that. But we should look with healthy, excited passion at why God makes. And, and, and this is kind of cool. I mean, because the first thing you really want to think about, and if this all goes back to God. I mean, if anything, I, I would like to stress in this series, we, we have for the last few of them, and I stress it again today, that um, ultimately, 
God does everything he does to flex his own glory. I want you to get that, that it is not about us. The Bible's not about us. Frankly, the gospel is not about us. Creation is not about us. All of this is about God showing His glory. God showcasing His greatness. God saying, yes, I am God and I delight in all of my activities. It is so all about God. And so not about us. And that's even why God creates. The first reason God creates, God makes, is to express His triune attributes. God makes to express his triune attributes. Now, I, I want to go back, if you were with us, for the message on Trinity. Uh, one of the things we talked about is that God is love. And we said, if God is love, that is the essence of his being, that is the very fabric of his person. And so for God to be love, we talked about in theology, we say that God has the necessity, then, to be a Trinity. Because love is something expressed and received. So within the, the Godhead, Father loves Son, Son loves Father, and the expression of love between Father and Son personifies in the third person, the Holy Spirit, as He proceeds back and forth from both, bringing love, bringing community, bringing union. So within the Trinity, you have that dance where they're celebrating their attributes. Now let me tweak with your mind. This is the point where you want to take an Advil right now. Um, because you're, you're going to be like, oh, make him stop. All right, so um, it's going to be sweet. All right, so here's the thing about God always existing. We say God is eternal, which means not just he's going eternal that way. He's eternal that way, right? So Father, Son, and Spirit have always been. They've just always been. And Father, Son, and Spirit have always revealed their attributes within themselves. So, Father, Son, and Spirit have always loved. Father, Son, and Spirit have always been happy. Father, Son, and Spirit have always shown glory. Now, let me, let me tell you where this is a little bit problematic. Um, in a perfect community, in a perfect trinity, a perfect deity, there are some attributes that can only be manifest in the context of at least, at least, the intention to create. I say that because, again, it gives God the flexibility to exercise all of his attributes eternally in the past because he's eternally planned to create. Now, let me see if I can link up what I mean by this. Um, if, if, if God is all of his attributes equally and perfectly in a trinity, how do you show grace in a trinity where there is no folly? How do you show justice when nobody violates the code? How do you show forgiveness if nobody's transgressed? See, there's all these attributes that we cherish, we prize, that are true to God, but they could not find eternal expression in God unless God said, I'm going to plan to create. And in that creation, then the rest of those attributes, they will play out. So by having it in the plan, he's exercising the attributes. Even if it was a while before the plan commences, by having the plan, the attributes play. Now you may say, ah, how, how does this sync up? All right, well, Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Right? So here's God before the foundations of the world. We're going into eternity past. 
making decisions to choose before the foundations of the world, us. Says that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has bestowed on us in the beloved. The plan is back there. And the plan is back there, not just for our benefit, but for the opportunity for God to display the fullness of His character. Father to Son, Son to Spirit, Spirit to Father, and around it goes. God eternally could show grace, not because any one of the members of the Trinity had failed and needed grace, but because God knew, planned, determined a creation that would then have the capacity and need for those things. Now, I know these are mind benders, so let me go ahead and just blow your mind straight out the side and we'll call it done. It'll all be on that wall. All right, so here you go. Revelation 13, 8. It says, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. This is in times we don't like it. It's mean. All right, so don't be there. That's my point. All right, so uh, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. <laughs> right? So, I don't even know what that means. You know, you're like, uh, can you explain it to us? Nope, I can't. Um, I won't even dare try, you know. What it, what it does is it creates the tension of saying, there are a lot of things that God has just determined. And all of those predetermined things give God the capacity in himself to reveal the fullness of himself eternally. Now, I know we are then looking at this like Genesis 1. Well, I've got questions. Right? You know, do yourself a favor. Just retire those questions. Because, you know, you're not going to find out. I'm not going to find out. We're going to die. We're going to get there. We're going to go like, uh, what was with that? And then he's going to tell us. We're like, oh, genius. But in this life, we're just going to be like drooling. And like, I don't know. You know, because you just can't know. You can't know. But what we do know is that by God having this sense of predestination and predetermination, and by Jesus already writing in the Lamb's book of life before the creation of the world, and in some sense the plan for Jesus to be slain even before the world even existed, it gives God the full capacity to exercise his own attributes within himself. And so this is why God sets out to make, because all, it's all about God's glory. God wants to, to, to glorify himself in all the ways that he is glorious. All of these attributes, all of these dispositions. The second reason God makes is to delight in his own triune creativity. He wants to delight in his own triune creativity. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you see the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and then God said. I don't know if you notice it there, but you have all three members of the Trinity. God, Spirit, and when it says God said, that's God's word. That's Christ. Now you may say, ah, no, I think that's just God talking. How is that Jesus? Well, then you jump to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, starts off the same way as Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And it says, all things were made through Him, and without Him, there, are, there was not anything that was made. He did it all. I mean, everything was done by Him. And then it goes on to say, and then the Word came and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. So, 
In the beginning, God. In the beginning, the Spirit. In the beginning, the Word, the Son. They created. In fact, it's really cool. If you go into Proverbs chapter 8, you see this scene where wisdom is personified. Uh, So uh, wisdom becomes like a person, which is great because wisdom and word are very similar. And what you see there is it says, I wisdom, uh, I I dwell with prudence, I find knowledge and discretion. When he, God, established the heavens, I was there. I was beside him like a master worksman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. I mean, I, I think about this and go, man, that's just the delight of the Godhead. There's father and son in the workshop, man. They're just working together. They're doing the thing. They're like, ah, we're going to carve this out. We're going to make it like this. And we're going to make an aardvark. That thing's wacky looking. It's going to be awesome. And, uh, and then Jesus is like, uh, what about that thing called a cat? And God says, no, we're not making that. We're going to leave that for the devil. So, um, <laughs> right? So they make and they create and they do all these things. Uh, but then also in that, there is this, this knowledge of And son, as we make this, you're also going to redeem this. And as we craft this, it's going to come apart and only you can pull it together. And yet even in that father and son delight, father says, I will delight in your sacrifice and you will delight in my glory and we will bring them into that glory. And so all the more they delight. See, God creates to delight. But then the third reason God creates is to dispense his triune community. Right? He wants to bring us in to the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. This is why in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says, Then God, singular, right? God said, Let us, plural, make mankind in our image and in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And like we looked at within the Trinity model, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit said, we want to bring them in to be one with us. That doesn't make us divine. That doesn't make us deities. It doesn't make us the fourth member of the Trinity. I know some of us have attitudes like we think we are, but we're not. All right? So, but it doesn't, doesn't make us that. It just means that by the work of Christ, we get to participate in the divine community. But that goes back to the original plan. God says, I'm going to make them in my image and make them in my likeness so we can have community. I mean, that was the real heart. In fact, this takes us really to the next step of this morning, which is the idea of what God makes. When you look at this whole thing of what God makes, it all comes back to this idea of His delight His glory, His community. That's really the essence of what God makes.
the creation. Not only the creation, but particularly the Garden of Eden. These are stories that we look at and we go, man, we know those stories and we feel like we know them well because, well, frankly, some of us, you know, we grew up in church. We went to Sunday school. We have kids. We read their children's Bible to them. And in that, we see all of the story of what we know to be the creation story. But I think sometimes we get numb to these stories and we don't realize that they all have theological significance and dramatic impact that's always good to know about. I think about it particularly as it relates to Eden. In a lot of ways, Eden is like this space that you see before me. And it's really in this location that you see two distinct aspects or elements. The first is the domesticated space, the grass, the sprawling lawn, the place where humans have established this so that we could enjoy it and relax and appreciate the tranquility. In that sense, the grass is like sanctuary. It's like Eden. But quickly, you'll notice that there are borders. And the grass hits this undomesticated space, the wild, the untamed. Well, that, in a lot of ways, is the way God sort of orchestrated Eden in relationship to the rest of the earth. In a lot of ways, we see in Genesis where God created everything that we're familiar with. The sky, the heavens, the earth, uh, the seas, the land. He populated all of that with the animals. But what we don't realize is that all of that was untamed. And what God then set out to do was establish a very special location. It's as though he carved out of the wild something completely controlled, something without chaos, something without a sense of disorder. It was radically ordered. In fact, more than that, it was sanctuary. And in that sanctuary, God would dwell with the pinnacle of his creation. Not just another animal that roams the land or an exotic bird that flies through the air. No, God would place within Eden the most elaborate, spectacular, amazing creation that would ever be. And what would make it so amazing is not simply its capacity for learning or its intellect, but really that it would bear the image of God, that it would house his likeness, that it would house his sense of priority. And from that, they would become worshipers. In the sacred space, God would come to walk with them and they would worship God. That is the beauty of the pinnacle of creation there in Eden, there with these special individuals that we know to be Adam and Eve. They would be the chief end of the creation of God. Now, when it comes to this creation of God, this pinnacle that will bear his image, I think there's a little bit of misunderstanding. Now, some of that misunderstanding, I think, is rooted in the fact that people assume that Adam was a product of in here. That Adam is a creation that came directly in the context of Eden. As though one day he woke up and rubbed his eyes and saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life over there and God before him. And then in the far distance saw the borders of Eden. But in reality, when we read the scripture, we see that Adam is not a child of Eden, but rather when God set out to create Adam, Adam was made in the wild. Here it is. This, this is our beginnings right here. These are our roots. And I'm sure some of you are looking at this right now going, great, so what you're telling me is I'm ultimately just a glorified dirt clod. Well, Yes and no. In the sense that we all come from the dust of the earth, yes, we're glorified dirt clods. 
But see, what makes this so impressive is that God takes something as basic as the dust of the earth. And he is going to do the most incredible miracle of all the creation miracles. See, one of the things that can be easily overlooked in the book of Genesis is how God creates the heavens and the earth. Uh, In each sequence, God simply speaks and creation obeys, right? It just forms out of the very words that God speaks. But when we get to the creation of Adam, it's like the imagery changes. And it's not God sort of distant or removed commanding the creation. It's as though God gets down and he begins to gather the soil. God has his fingerprints all over Adam. starts to form all the facial structure and all the muscles that will work to show different expressions, joy or worship or grief or perplexity or concern or enthusiasm. All of that's going to be formed into the face that God makes, but then God forms the nose and he forms two nostrils and it's really there that God creates an access point for the most incredible part of the whole creation. It says that God leaned in and breathed breath into Adam, and Adam became a living being. See, when it says that, it just doesn't simply mean that Adam's heart began to beat and his lungs began to swell with air. It's something more profound. It's deeper. It's where Adam, at that moment, became the image bearer of God. He received the full likeness of God. I mean, this was the whole plan of the pinnacle of creation. And yet it's only there when Adam is an image bearer, when Adam has that likeness, that Adam can walk with God, God can walk with Adam, Adam can worship God, and God can delight in Adam. Because it's there that they find their union. And so really, at this juncture, God makes him alive and then takes him from the outside in the wild to the inside in the garden. And yet that's the very essence of the gospel. This is what I love about it. The gospel is embedded in Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, think about it. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Then we were made alive by God. And then once alive, we went from the outside to being insiders where we can dwell with God. That's the gospel. That's Genesis. And so this whole scene is an incredible scene where Right from the get-go, God reminds us of the gospel and its goodness and his goodness and its glory. 
where we are taken from death to life and then from outsiders to insiders. Now, once in Eden, Adam had three core responsibilities. And I think this is important because sometimes when we think about the story of Adam and Eve in Eden, we picture this scene where it's like a couple of naked people hanging out all day, eating fruit, making babies, just having a good time like it's some kind of staycation permanently in Eden. But when we read actually the story of Genesis, we see that God gave them three core responsibilities. The first thing was this, be fruitful and multiply. Now, when we think about that, we're thinking, sure, God wanted them to procreate because he needed to fill up Eden and uh, have babies and children and raise them to be the next generation. But when God tells them that, it's a little bit more particular. What God wants them to do is to go and create image bearers just as God created them as those who bear his image. In short, what God was looking for was worshipers. God wanted Adam and Eve to establish the next generation of those who would see the glory of God, celebrate the glory of God, dwell with God, and love the presence that they have with him. In fact, that's why Eden was this place where people could walk with God and God would walk with people and there was interaction and it was bliss. And so in a lot of ways, Adam and Eve were like the first church planters and every baby that they would have would become another member of the congregation of God that would worship him perpetually and eternally. The second thing God commands of Adam is that Adam would tend and keep the garden. Now, when we look at that, we might think, okay, well, God wanted it well manicured and to have a certain environment maintained. But these ideas are actually worship ideas again. In fact, later in the Old Testament, we'll read about the priesthood. And there, God tells every priest, whether it's related to the temple or the tabernacle, that they are to tend and keep to the affairs of that sacred space. See, those commands go all the way back to Eden when God told Adam, I want you to do the same thing. The reason for that is because Eden wasn't simply a garden. Eden was the place that God created on earth to be his temple, his tabernacle, his dwelling place where men could come and walk with God and God could fulfill the needs and the hearts of men. And so this was Adam's commission to make sure that this place remained a sacred place for all the peoples of the earth to gather and enjoy their God. The third thing that was really cool, God told Adam to subdue the earth. Now that's one of those weird things because again, the word subdue is not calm, it's not casual. There's this idea of move forward, advance, drive in a direction. And in that sense, what God wanted Adam to do was to take the space of Eden and not only protect it, but also advance it. In other words, God was saying, I want you to clear out some room. I want the borders to advance. I want you to drive it outward. In fact, if anything, what God wanted was to have Eden go to the ends of the earth. So Eden started as a simple space on the planet where Adam and Eve were dwelling, but it was to expand. The borders were to increase. And again, I think this is the gospel. This is the advancement of the kingdom. The same imagery is embedded right there in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where God says, I want you to see Eden spread. I want you to see my sanctuary spread. I want you to see my presence spread and my glory spread. When we take the entire story of Genesis 1, Genesis 2, why God created how God created, how God took Adam from out there and brought him in here with life and then said, now go and take it, man, you see the very essence 
of a maker who then makes so that those made would go out and continue to fulfill the calling of God to make. God makes makers to go and make. I mean, if you wanted to really go, how do we pull the story together? God makes makers who will go and make. That's why I say the gospel is embedded into Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God took Adam from the outside and put him on the inside, and he says, I want you as an insider to go to the outside. And you know what happened? Adam failed. Instead of walking with God and subduing the earth, Adam rebelled against God and was thrown to the harshness. So then later, God says, all right, I'm going to do this different. I'm going to choose now a nation. And the nation is going to be outsiders. I'm going to make them insiders. And then as insiders in this promised land, not a garden, but now a land, I'm going to send them from that promised land to go out and make worshipers. And again, there's failure. So then Jesus sends His Son, the Maker. And the Maker comes into the world and He says, I'm going to take outsiders and I'm going to make them new. I'm going to make them different. I'm going to give them a new heart and a new spirit and a new covenant. They will be men made new. But then what's brought inside is new creations, He will say, and now I want you to go out and make. I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to expand the borders of the kingdom. I want you to take my glory to the ends of the earth. See, we can look at creation all day long and we can debate about the nature of creation all day long, but the story reminds us of God's mission to spread His fame and to spread His glory as a God who makes us so that we can go and we can make disciples. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the bigger picture reminder of creation. Sometimes we get bogged in the lesser issues and we miss the big idea. How we see you, Jesus, all throughout the Bible. How we see the gospel all throughout the Bible. Not just in Genesis 3, we see you as the seed that bruises the serpent's head, but we see you in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We see your gospel in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We see you all throughout. In Jesus, we give you credit. We give you praise. We love you and we need you. And we pray that we would fulfill your great commission to see again your gospel go to the ends of the earth, to see your glory shared to the four corners. We love you and thank you. Reclaim your creation fully, fully for your glory in your name. Amen.